Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I am your host, Aparna Gopalan, and today I'm going to be talking to Professor Alpa Shah, one of the authors of Ground Down by Growth, Tribe, Caste, Class, and Inequality in 21st Century India, which came out with Pluto Press in 2017. Here is the interview. I'm delighted to be speaking with Professor Alpa Shah, the author of Ground Down by Growth. Welcome to the program, Alpa. Thanks, Aparna. Um, very happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, I'd like to uh, make a minor intervention in your introduction that I am just one of the authors of Ground Down by Growth, but we'll get to that in a bit. Okay, yes. Uh, yeah, so co-author of Ground Down by Growth. Just to begin, uh, in our correspondence recently, I learned the great news that your 2018 book, Night March, had been longlisted for the Orwell Prize. Um, and that got me thinking that in some ways, the newest book, Night March, has circled back to some of your earliest work on tribal politics and insurgency in central India. So uh, my question is, how did you come to become an anthropologist of South Asia with an interest in revolutionary uprisings? And how does Ground Down by Growth fit into this trajectory? Uh, yeah, well, you know, I think I've always been interested in inequality and various kinds of efforts to address it. And when I was a student at university, I was reading geography. And at that time, you know, like many people uh, in in England, you know, that the left was in very much in decline. And one of the ways in which you directed your efforts uh, was to think about development, you know, international development uh, as a as a way of trying to. Um, trying to improve, you know, the unequal situation that you see all around us. You know, my upbringing was in Nairobi and in Kenya. And I think that had a deep impact uh, on me in terms of the vast kind of inequalities that people lived in. And then when we came, my family moved to England. And and I think, yeah, the, these like deep-rooted experiences and also my own family history um, and uh, of, you know, working on, 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 uh, in agricultural fields in Gujarat and then ending up, my father was a doctor and, you know, a kind of actually a success story like many other um, South Asian diaspora stories of success into future generations. And um, but thinking back to my own family history and thinking about the inequalities that surrounded me in, 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 in Kenya, it, 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 you know, those kind of concerns were very much prevalent. And like, as I was saying, most people in, in my kind of generation, you know, the ways in which they tried to think about and work with inequality was through development. And, you know, I was naive. I thought, you know, international development efforts could, um, you know, have an impact on on, on poor people. And um, what I felt, I think, was that um, uh, many of the policies and programs um, that were being conceived for people in faraway places were being designed in ivory towers and uh, at university whilst reading 
whilst reading geography, I realized that actually there was this thing called anthropology um, because some of the best books I was reading were written by anthropologists. And this subject, anthropology, involves being you know, deep immersion in societies that you kind of otherwise would not know and, um, you know, challenging received wisdoms about conventional, you know, about, about received wisdoms about, about, uh, about the world. And I was particularly influenced by um, certain books I read, for example, Jim Ferguson's, you know, Anti-Politics Machine, where he questions the whole development machinery uh, through the Tabaseka um program in the Soto, a Canadian-funded program. Uh, I was really influenced by Melissa Leach and... Um, James Fairhead's book, The Misreading the African Landscape, where they show these grand narratives of 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 um of deforestation if you looked from a bottom up perspective uh through the people that were living the lives of people that were living in those areas in West Africa that they studied actually you know there was a reforestation process going on uh I was really um you know influenced by Nancy Shepherd Hughes death without weeping and so I, I I I realized that actually you know I'm reading all these books and and then I realized there's a pattern the ones that I'm most interested they're all written by anthropologists and so I turned to anthropology and I decided to do a master's in anthropology at LSE um, uh, and uh, yeah I had been in Cambridge previously and I just wanted to be in the big city but the the training I received as a master's student it was very you know highly highly theoretical and um, and while that was all great at one level I felt like I was nowhere closer to um, to my goals and actually I needed to go you know go to the field to actually uh, yeah, just just be involved in practical work, uh, development work. I still, you know, I still thought um, at the time, and and you know, and I thought, well, academia, gosh, yeah, it's such a, you know, it's it's very interesting, but it's not for me. And um, and so I thought, where shall I go? What shall I do? And um, and because I had, as I said, these distant roots uh, in India, I thought yeah I'll go to India you know I was fascinated by India um, um, because of my own family history and so um, I landed up in India um, in in Delhi actually and then I um, I, 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 I didn't want to go anywhere where I had any family connections because I was very concerned that I'd be kind of um, <clears throat> as a as a as a young woman Indian woman I would be um you know, it would curtail my movements and um and and I yeah I just I decided to stay as far away from you know Gujarat or that side of India and I landed up in Jharkhand um completely by chance you know so many things happened to us by chance uh Jharkhand the state in eastern India um which at the time you know was part of Bihar uh which was a part of Bihar that not many people had knew about or you know the Lonely Planet had a very brief kind of account of it <laughs> at least and um and then I I I really you know I I was working on various you know with an NGO at one point and then with the department for international development project uk government project at one point and and I, I was still kind of very i felt i was still very far from the reality of people's lives because most of the time you know you were going around in these um in these um jeeps uh in 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 these um 
Land Rovers through the landscape and, you know, you lived in the cities in these hotels or kind of guest houses and you never really, there was never any time to really immerse you, the, you, your, yourselves amongst the people and really get beyond a certain kind of very, um, uh, very superficial account of what was happening in these areas, which you were then supposed to be, you know, uh, addressing through development efforts. So I then thought, well, actually, maybe I'm wrong. You know, maybe I do kind of need to go back to academia <laughs> and do a PhD in anthropology because that will actually enable me to really think about inequality and, um, and efforts to address it from a very grassroots perspective. It will give me the opportunity to, you know, stay for one and a half years. By that time, I was already really fascinated by Jharkhand and uh, I ended up staying there for six months, there for six months before I started my PhD. And, 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 um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of how, um, you know, how I ended up becoming an anthropologist and South Asianist, you know, by, yeah, just intrigue and default of choices or chance occasions and working in Jharkhand completely by chance. Uh, and then, um, and then my, my, my initial PhD was all about, you know, a, a big UNICEF um, program that was coming into the rural areas of India. It was called the Debe Development of Women and Children in Rural Areas Program. And I was interested in how these policies for for gender and, you know, women and child development were being implemented on the ground. And then, of course, when I started living in, that was my proposal, and when I started, started living in, in, in these villages in Jharkhand amongst the Adivasis, I realized that these things exist uh, only on paper. The groups that were supposed to exist under this program, you know, there were meant to be 14 successful groups in this one particular block of 114 villages. And actually, you know, uh, they really were only on paper, and uh, and so um, so you know. Well, anthropology is just a whole. Um, it's an amazing. It's an amazing subject because it allows you to completely, you know, rethink everything that you started off with, including your entire proposal. And um, so my, I, I became you know much more interested in like what the state meant to people and what kinds of efforts were coming down from the state in the name of the people and how people at the grassroots understood them and their interactions with the state and and then a various range of different kinds of players that were um, trying to, you know, um, improve the conditions of Adivasis in Jharkhand, which, in, which was a, the state, but also various indigenous rights activists. And towards the end of my doctoral um, research, the Maoist Naxalite, um, you know, the Maoist inspired Naxalites started moving in through into those into those villages, and my some of my village friends were being recruited to join them. And I thought, yeah, they're just a bunch of you know racketeers, really. They're like the Sicilian mafia. Um, but, um, and this was, you know, actually I wrote a paper about them, uh, in, in those terms as a kind of another kind of market of, you know, entering these markets of protection. It was the, that's what the article was called. But then I came back to England and, you know, I watched things from afar and I got more and more intrigued by the fact that so many people were joining, um, 
the the Maoists from from you know so many Adivasis were joining them and so so this was like so in my initial stay in Jharkhand was in the 1990s my PhD research was 2000 you know to 2002 the fieldwork itself and then now I'm watching things in 2004 you know they're considered the greatest biggest the biggest internal security challenge um and um or they're united and then in 2006 they're considered the greatest big the biggest single internal security threat by Manmohan Singh the then prime minister and meanwhile I'd become fascinated by them and I was trying to get back to Jharkhand to actually go and live in one of their guerrilla strongholds to find out you know more about what's happening and you know why is it that what's happening and I wasn't convinced by the stories that we could get here about why Adivasis were joining them or, or not as the case might be so um so yeah, so this is just to kind of give you an idea of like how, you know, one thing leads to another, leads to another, and then you question your own kind of um, assumptions about, um, you, you know, your, you question the assumptions that people, the, the people that, um, you know, the, the, in my case, whether it was development, um, uh, development practitioners or the state or the Maoists or the indigenous rights activists and various forms of activism on behalf of um, Adivasis to address inequality. So you're, you're, you know, you're by by doing such an in-depth work, you end up kind of questioning them, and you also end up questioning your own assumptions about what you had thought previously. So that's how things kind of developed, and and um, as a result of this kind of long-term immerse immersion in Jharkhand, you know, I lived there over four and a half years. Several things were striking. You know, one was that you know this was a period of economic growth in India. You know, India was now set to be one of the world, you know, it is now the world's fastest growing major economy, you know, the IMF has said. Um, it's, uh, it's it, it, you know, India was transforming massively during time that I was there, even, you know, a place like Ranchi where I'd lived, you know, it changed dramatically from being a little sleepy um, quiet, uh, you know, town when I first got there, you know, hardly a rickshaw on the main street. And now you can't like move through the city because it's chock a block with, you know, all kinds of vehicles uh, from trucks to motorbikes to, you know, the bicycle. Forget you can't even cycle there now, you know. I mean, or of course, people do cycle there, but um, uh, um, because they have to. But, uh, you know, I mean, I stopped cycling in Ranji City and, and, and uh, in 2008 um, because it was just too dangerous and so it's just and you know there's this massive building the infrastructure huge towers coming up where there were mud huts and so it's you know this huge transformation was taking place you know right before my eyes and this was India's kind of economic growth. And of course, this was a place which was full of India's mineral resources. It had the greatest, you know, kind of wealth of iron ore reserves, you know, of um, coal, bauxite. Uh, and uh, meanwhile, there are all these Adivasis who are living in, you know, in the villages where I worked, who in, in terms of poverty levels, 
were, you know, extremely right at the bottom end of, of the whole spectrum, who, you know, lived in mud houses, had no electricity, there was no sanitation, you know, many of the villages I lived in, you know, there was like maybe 10% of the population was literate, even that only to a very small degree, you know, so it's just these, and meanwhile, we have these, you know, this huge development taking place. And of course, and then there was a you know the 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 fight you know how the 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 trying to get at those minerals the kind of land laws that had been pr- protecting adivasis from their lands were they were being undermined meanwhile the naxalites were being you know cast as these terrorists and security forces being brought into these areas and human rights activists saying that this the real reason for this was actually to get at the minerals under underneath the land so actually this is a process of a slow cleansing of the adivasi population taking place uh, um, under the economic boom um so that you know all these processes were going on and um inequality economic growth was you know people were marveling at it but inequality was rising india now has you know a hundred dollar billionaires but you know 60 percent of its population still lives below the poverty you know the international poverty poverty line uh and you know you that those are you know these are the figures but you can see you can see this on a landscape you know of india the rise of gated communities and slums you know that are that are that are at its doorsteps and um so uh, you know i i i one of the things that really struck me um uh, about this is the, the importance of understanding these processes and 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 how we needed new analysis of of the economy um that was a kind of bottom up analysis because there are all these poverty figures being produced i mean people were not paying attention to um you know so the economists of course were producing all these figures on poverty but very rarely did they pay attention to things like caste or tribe uh, and those that did showed us that you know adivasis and dalits across the country are 20% you know poorer than all other groups um that in terms of um their their the 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 jobs that they're employed in you know the worst off jobs the casual labor jobs you know adivasis and dalits are more, more prevalent than other groups in them so um then you think about the analysis from the left i mean i that i happen to have you know um spend a lot of time with the naxalites so you know their understanding of the economy is like it's you know semi-feudal and it's semi-colonial and you know that was just seemed you know that was completely in my opinion is completely outdated it's not the you know it's 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 um it needs it needs complete rethinking because capitalism is now prevalent across the countryside so in and then other sections of the left you know where caste and tribe didn't really figure in any of the analysis so it felt like there was a need to you know bring together um uh um all of these different things that were going on economic growth poverty um the implications for poverty where do adivasis and dalits feature in this how do we think about you know the processes that are underpinning um uh, uh and uh, underpinning the prevalence of adivasis and dalits amongst poverty figures um so so yeah and and also you know in the discipline of anthropology like how um it, it, the in 
at, at the time, you know, it felt very much that, you know, political economy, while there were people who were working on political economy, it was also kind of at the margins of the discipline. It would, you know, whereas once there were a lot, whereas once it was quite central, actually, we needed to kind of reinvigorate, you know, new generations to, um, to, to, to take on the task of, you know, understanding things like inequality, economic growth, you know, and caste and tribe in relation to that. So, um, yeah, so that's how I kind of ended up um, thinking about, you know, ground down by growth or, or basically the, pro, the research program that led to, to the making, making of that booth, book. So it's a very really, long-winded <laughs> answer. No, I think it's actually, uh, it was necessary because it's also remarkable how um, if one just looks at, you know, your career trajectory, there's an argument there because you see that you work on Naxalism and then you see that you work on poverty and growth. And that itself, you know, is a statement on the connect- connectedness of these things um, and not kind of divorcing, you know, the security problems from the problems of poverty, but kind of seeing it all in one frame. I think that that explains a lot. So thank you for that. Um, about the book Round On by Growth, though, as you had started to mention in the very beginning, um, not only is the genesis of the book really interesting, but also the process by which it was researched and written um, is quite remarkable and unique um, in that it doesn't take the form of an edited volume, but a co-authored collection in which all the scholars involved um gathered together before writing the book they thought about you know how to as as you describe it thought about how to write the book together how to do the research um and then in kind of a collaborative manner carried out the research and then you know came back and did the writing so what was this process like and what difference did it make that you wrote the book in this manner mm. well um you know i was really lucky um because i was awarded uh, an esrc um uh, that is the UK Government Economic and Social Research Council and the uh, grant and and uh, and a European Research Council grant. Like these were major grants to undertake this research. And um, what that enabled it is to bring a, a team of people together to carry out work uh, in different sites across the country. So what I think I felt was like I was having this one experience of Jharkhand and I had these ideas of what was going on. And um, But, you know, like as anthropologists, uh, even though we try to, um, you know, we work on something so specific and, and such a localized studies we have, even though we, you know, make them multi-sided or we follow processes up the scale, at the end of the day, they're still about, you know, very focused on one site and following that site through different sites, if you see what I mean. So what I, what, what, what I, what I realized is that what's important to do in this case is to try and get a team of people working in different sites across the country to ask similar questions uh, across across these across all the sites so we could have a better kind of nationwide idea of what's happening to adivasis and dalits so the the really the question that we started off with was you know how and why 
uh, are Adivasis and Dalits, you know, at the bottom of the economic and social hierarchy. And this question emerged from the fact that we had this data that were from economists that showed, you know, patterns of um, Adivasi and Dalit impoverishment across the country in relation to other groups. And, but, you know, what economists are great at showing us is like patterns as appear in their data, but the processes, the bottom-up processes of what's keeping the bottom-up processes, which can be followed up the scale, of course, um, which which are keeping Adivasis and Dalits at the bottom of society. Like, what are those processes, and how have those changed over time? And that, you know, was 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 a question. Was our question? Was a question that we wanted to kind of figure out and um so you know because we know that some definitely there has been changes in 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 the forms of discrimination like it in villages where there are still many villages in in india where you know caste discrimination is very prevalent you know you a dalit still can't walk through a high caste area without taking, you know, his shoes or her shoes off, uh, or can't get water from high caste wells. I mean, that all form of discrimination, the ritual impurity. And you know, just recently we had this news about two about about um, two Dalits being forced to eat their own excrement, and you know, so that kind of ritual impurity that's kind of sh- shocking um, oppression still exists, but. In many places, it has been watered down. You know, Dalits can in, you know, in Bihar, where there was prevalent, very, very strong caste discrimination, now look, you know, a landlord in their eye, you know, and, and, and answer back. And, um, uh, and so th- there have been changes. So we wanted to understand, you know, what's happening in, in this in this new economy. And so to answer this question, it seemed important to be, to have, you know, a, 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 to try and have um, several studies in different parts of the country. So um, I actually, um, I paired up with um, Jens Lurker, who was one of the co-investigators on these projects and who led the program of research with me. And we put out an ad for postdoctoral researchers um, to come and work with us. So we wanted people who were already experienced working with Adivasis and who had already done work with Adivasis or Dalits or the or or or, or issues of inequality and poverty in India, who you know spoke the local language, who languages, who were kind of trained, you know, anthropologists, trained field workers. And we put out an ad uh, like international advert for for to to bring together a team of scholars and from that we we had a um the the team that wrote the book that is that co-authors to the book which is um you know Richard Axelby who worked in uh, Himachal Pradesh I'll tell you a bit more about the field sites in a minute then Dalel Benbabali who worked in Telangana and Brendan Donegan who worked in Tamil Nadu and Jessalyn Raj who worked in the Kerala tea plantations and Vikram Ditya Thakur, who worked uh, on the Beals and the Narmada um, basin, um, and uh, yeah, so this was this was our this was our team, and we so we were together the, all of us for three years, and how that worked out was in the first like six months we were in London, and we dis- we read together the work of scholars 
whose methodologies and whose theoretical perspectives we found inspirational in thinking about the issues we, we were working on. So, And they came to our seminars. So, for example, Jan Bremen for his, you know, um, landmark work on migrant laborers in, in, in India, which actually proved to be kind of very central to many of the issues in Ground Down by Growth. Um, you know, Jonathan Parry's work on labor in, in Bilai on, you know, diff- on basically looking at the differences between Nokri formal sector jobs and calm informal sector jobs. We had Barbara Harris White involved in the program. We had Anantel Tunde coming. We had some of the economists whose work we were using, like KP Kanan and uh, Ravi Srivastava, who had been part of that whole um, NCUS um, uh, uh, data set, which collected, which showed that Adivasis and Dalits across the country were worse off than all other groups. Uh, who, it was a big data set on informal um, uh, informal labor. Uh, anyway, so they and they had this, you know, landmark report in 2007, which was actually kind of embargoed for a while. Um, and so we had, you know, all of these different kinds of people who who we worked with to develop our ideas and to develop to learn from them, basically about you know, think these issues with with them, and then we um we had a whole process of field work whereby um a year of field work uh and in that time um uh richard delal brendan jerselin and vikram were based in 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 their field sites and the idea was that we had several kind of methods like several things that would we were following across each field site so collecting you know some basic kind of data on education, on livelihoods, on land, on, you know, labor on, um, in, in each of the sites cast wise. So we could compare, you know, what was happening in the field sites. Uh, and then, you know, basic issues that we were following through the pros through each site. So, you know, labor relations, um, land relations. So if there were, you know, big corporations in the area, you know, how that their history and how they'd, and how that impacted on on the villages in which uh, surrounding them. So just so we had a kind of core set of issues that we were looking at in in each site, and we met up then throughout the process of field work. So we had pilot surveys that we kind of got together to discuss, and then uh, Jens and I visited each of the field sites and spent several days with um, with with um, with with all the all the all all the postdoctoral researchers who were working there and then they visited one person one other postdoctoral researcher so and then of course organic relations between them also grew so um which are all you know it was which was really nice um to see so for example um uh you know richard axelby visited uh, there were there were there were migrant workers in the Kerala tree plantations who had come from Jharkhand. So Jaisal and Raj went to visit them back in their home villages in Jharkhand from the tea plantations in Kerala. And you know Richard Axelby joined him in 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 that trip to Jharkhand. So you know that these kinds of organic relations which developed between the researchers, which also has, you know, generated um, yeah lots of interesting insights and which made. So the advantage of doing it like this was that, you know, we had the the collective effort is just so much more than the sum of the 
parts if it, if that if that if that if that makes any sense you know so it's so we could and we could now think of a kind of india wide analysis of what's happening to adivasi and dalit um dalit labor so in for me it was um you know i learned so much about the rest of india and i could put my own um Sit, you know, I could compare the situation, my experiences in Jhar- Jharkhand, and have reflect on them in very different ways by thinking at a kind of national, on in terms of a national, in terms of a national level, in relation to different sites. And we saw patterns emerging that we wouldn't have spotted otherwise. For example, you know, the the fact that in all of the field sites, um, the 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 in, in well in three of the field sites. Um, so in all the field sites except for one, migrant labor, seasonal casual migrant labor was really, you know, important. And in three of the field sites, this labor was coming from, you know, from central and eastern India, so places like Jharkhand. And, you know, and this we could see, you know, we found Jharkhandi laborers in in, in Himachal, we found them in the Kerala tea plantations, uh, you know, we found them in uh, in the Tamil Nadu chemical belt, and so you know, we you, you see these patterns that are that you you know you might not have paid attention to them otherwise. You know, you a bunch of migrant laborers hidden in a dormitory in uh, in in a house in uh, in 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 Tamil Nadu. You know, when you're actually looking at relations between Dalits and their landlords in in that site, and suddenly you know you you start paying attention to these migrant laborers because you see them popping up across all your sites you know and and they're hidden away of course and you can't normally see them and you know and it's easy to miss them even when you're living there for such a long time so it's things like that that um you know uh i think um made it a kind of quite exceptional and very rewarding undertaking um it's quite counter um it's not the way in which anthropologists generally do things, you know, like myself. I mean, you know, you, you just generally consider yourself as a lone researcher going out to your lone field site and, you know, working at th- away at things by yourself. And, um, and so, and also part of the beauty of anthropological research, which we didn't want to lose in this, in this kind of way of organizing things is also that you know you come across things that you wouldn't have you that were never in in your mind even you know that you you, you your your inquiry is open-ended you know so you have an idea of what you're looking at but then that idea just changes over time because of what happens in the field and the things that you know you follow your nose basically uh, and you're led by you know a lot by intuition but also by your 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 your, your the people you're living with what what happens in their lives and if suddenly you know people start migrating to brick factories as i found in my phd field site you know then you know you suddenly start migrating with them you know it's like not that that was never your intention you know that or, or if they're joining you know armed revolutionaries you suddenly start following them you know you'd never even thought about armed revolutionaries when you first went in the field field it went to the field side so you know that's the, the beauty of anthropological research is that kind of open-endedness and what that may, might bring to you and of course by doing it this way we had a set of things that we were looking at across sites so it was quite you know we did know the things that we were going to try and compare across each site so so there was that kind of it was more perhaps it was more uh, a more constructed the nature of the field research but at the same time we wanted 
each field researcher, each postdoctoral researcher who was out for, you know, the year, sometimes a little bit more in those sites to be able to, you know, do much more than that's in ground down by growth that actually to to do the kind of more classic anthropological fieldwork and to follow uh, issues um, that you know whatever whatever they became interested in so we still had that going on side by side as well and you know I mean I'm I'm hoping I mean certainly some of them have produced articles on issues you know um, which which are tied to ground down by growth but are also different and and of course you know um, over the years I'm hoping we'll see monographs you know on each of these places um uh, as as well so um so yeah I think um you know it was um uh, the other thing to say is that you know what you're able to say it's it's just so much more powerful because you've got you know the evidence from all of these places so um, not just one place. So it, it, it enables you to kind of scale up your arguments in a way that you, you know, you can't otherwise. So, uh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, and I think you began to touch upon some of the, um, you know, conceptual and uh, theoretical innovations of this book, in addition to the methodological ones. Um, which basically concern providing us a new way to think about both capitalism and social difference. Um, and the way you do that in the book is you um, propose that instead of withering away, differences like caste and tribe actually become more entrenched with the expansion of capitalism, which is might be a counterintuitive position to many who might see you know, um, the growth of capitalism as something that moves India towards modernity and away from traditional things like caste. Um, and so could you speak a bit more about how you overcome basically the two impasses um, which we see both in the scholarship on caste and so tribe on the one hand and capitalism on the other hand, um, where the two somehow don't seem to fit together. Um, so what were some of the kind of ways in which you saw that um, not only do you know social difference and capitalism fit together, but they actually work synergistically to um, you know produce inequality? Yeah, I mean, uh, just to say, just to before I talk about that, I mean, it's it's not just our work which is showing that. I think, you know, there are other people on the ground who have been looking at these kinds of issues, though they might not have spelt them out in the same way um, before us. And I see very much what we're doing as building upon the, the, the work of other scholars. So, um, uh, so, so, yeah, so let's just to turn to your, to your, to your question. I mean, yeah, you're right. You know, I mean, both modernization theorists and also you know marxists alike uh, in expected or talked about caste kind of withering withering away but um what we have found across our sites is that um dalits and adivasis were worse off across every in every single site dalits and adivasis were worse off than all other groups as the economists had shown us the the way this was happening was through their incorporation as um, informal um, labor in the Indian economy. So, um, of course, the, also in terms of materially uh, and also in terms of education levels, they were they were worse off. But but you know their everyday kind of pr ways in which they were reproducing their households was through the informal economy. Now we know. 
that, you know, of the astonishing figures that 93% of India's um, workforce works in the uh, works in the informal economy. So they have, they don't have formal jobs, you know, so they don't have jobs with contracts, with security, with pensions, with, uh, they have no, none of these things. They have no health insurance. They are, you know, hired at a moment's hired on you know like by con- often by later contractors and fired you know at a moment's notice um and these are people working in the absolute kind of pit of the labor hierarchy who you know building the indian economic boom and what we found across our sites uh, is that the worst work was being done by Dalits and Adivasis in 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 all our, in all our sites, you know. So they, and even where they had, um, you know, education levels which were the same as those of higher caste groups, they still didn't get the same. They, they still got worse jobs than um, than the higher caste groups. So. Um, you know, so 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 it, then the modern like kind of economy was kind of using, you know, exploiting the labor force of Dalits and Adivasis, and more so than that of you know other other groups, and so things like um, you know, so 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 the the social caste and tribe. I mean, the these they they weren't like um they mattered in the new economy and they were being used actually um uh, in the modern economy and, and the, in all kinds of ways so also by pitting you know castes against each other pitting groups against each other to break their labor power um you know was is a kind of classic means of control so let me give you some like concrete um you know examples so for example in um in Tamil Nadu, where Brendan Donegan worked. So this was historically um, a, an area where there were big um, landlords and in, in the village where he worked, it was like another, the, there were nathers who were controlling the land. And um, and there were these, there were, there were Dalits who were originally, you know, bonded laborers, but then, you know, become, became, um, were the agricultural laborers worked on the on the fields of the nathers now this area became with with the economic liberalization it became the site of a huge chemical industrial belt so uh, going all the way down the coast this uh, chemical industries were planted on 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 the land so in this uh, village where he worked on, on just on the fringes of that there was uh, an an export oriented factory making gelatine you know gelatine from cow bones that was placed right there on 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 the fringe of the on the of the village um, you know it's like a kind of japanese venture and um and so what, what happened as land became less important to the Nathas, the Nathas basically made sure that they took over the running of these factories. So they, you know, they, they were, they got the best jobs. In fact, the factory itself was being run by one of the uh, family, um, uh, or relative of the, of the Nathas. 
and then and and the dalits were being brought into the factory as daily wage laborers so no 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 formal contracts and they were being brought to do um you know really um uh, really uh, hard difficult work of working uh, to clean those bones with very very toxic chemicals so um you know they were doing the worst work in those factories so from what what you see in this case is that capitalism you know the de- development of industrial this huge industrial belt what it did is from an agrarian um from these kind of old landlord uh, agricultural labor relations we now have the development of industrial relations whereby actually the old landlords are like are dominating in a very different way in in the factories over the dalits who are now they control the entire kind of labor process uh, and the kinds of jobs that dalits can get so uh, and you know we have a similar process happening in telangana uh, where there was a paper factory where the kamas who were historically owned the land they still own most of the land in the areas the kamas and the reddies um these are high caste groups you know they controlled the process of the labor um in those factories so uh, the adivasis and the you know adivasis didn't actually want jobs in those factories but a few did but and dalits were were employed in these factories to do all the casual labor uh, jobs the the worst jobs where they had no formal contracts so um so you you see the ways in which you know uh, in the new economies it's actually what you see at the bottom end is 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 dalits and adivasis uh, are very 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 prevalent in all of these sites so that's how you know um we you see the importance of 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 caste in the new economies caste and tribe distinctions in the new economies and what you also see is how you know castes are being used against each other so for example in tamil nadu when the dalit laborers decided to strike against their conditions of work um what the factory owners started to do is to bring in um uh labor adivasi and dalit labor from uh from bihar jharkhand orissa to cut the labor power of the dalits you know so they brought in you know a different group of people regionally and re- also at the bottom end of the scale regionally and uh, and in terms of you know identity and they they just um they 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 were put in place instead of the dalits so the dalits you know they could just control the dalits then and um uh and so yeah labor being pitted against each other low caste labor being pitted against each other um uh, uh in in the way in which you know capitalism kind of uses uses identities of caste and tribe um uh in order to you know exploit labor further so that's that's what you know that that's one of the kind of you know key dynamics we saw taking place in the same in the tea plantations of kerala where historically it was dalits who were brought to um from tamil nadu to pluck the tea uh in kerala uh, by the colonial tea planters and over the years you know they won a few some modicum of rights uh, as plantation labor um but now with the collapse of the tea economy um in the 80s and then the 90s and with liberalization those plantations were taken over by 
various multinational corporations and national corporations, and they um, decided to, you know, as part of that process, cut the labor force and um, Dalit workers who previously had permanent jobs were made into kind of more temporary status. And then when they decided, you know, to rise against their terms and conditions of work, you may remember in 2016, there was this famous women's autonomous kind of workers strike where you know 12,000 women basically stopped working for a month uh, protesting against their conditions well you know what was happening there was the plantation owners started had the process had already started this they, they'd been bringing in they're now bringing in Adivasi laborers in this case the place where we were uh, where Jessel and Raj was and and the pair made till the tea belt. And in Munar, you know, they started in bringing in um, Adivasi, Santali labor from Jharkhand. Uh, and these laborers were not given even the temporary work status that Dalit workers had. They were completely casual. They were brought in only for eight months of the year. And, you know, they'd go back and then they may come back the next year or they'd be taken somewhere completely different. So, again, you know, Adivasi is being pitted against Dalits at the bottom of the labor hierarchy to break the labor power of, um, you know, the Dalit workforce in, in, in this case. So, um, yeah, so these are just some examples of trying to show, you know, what it is that was going on, which made us come to this conclusion that actually um, the expansion uh, of capitalism under this form of economic growth has really is entrenching rather than, uh, you know, reducing these um, differences of caste and tribe inequalities. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for those examples. Yeah. So yeah, you know, I mean, a lot of the scholarship on, on on inequality has looked at economic inequality, but what we're trying to show is, you know, how social inequality is a part of that process of economic inequality as well. Yeah. Mm. And um, in the book, you actually um, say that you you call this uh, this interlinked nature of social and economic inequality. You call it conjugated oppressions. Um, so I'm wondering how does the concept of conjugated oppressions um, politically play out or what kinds of movements become possible when that's the way in which you conceive of inequality rather than say as a um, separated social and economic inequalities or as intersectional inequalities. So um, what are the political projects which flow from understanding the Indian landscape as one of conjugated oppressions? Yeah, so let me just explain why we, why we where that term comes from for us and why we use it um, before answering your your, your question. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, we, we owe a debt to uh, Philippe Bourgois, um, who worked, you know, on the banana plantations spanning the border of Costa Rica and Panama and the use of different ethnic groups in those banana plantations. And he basically talks about, you know, conjugated oppression as being, you know, how he, he says it's how an ideological dynamic of kind of ethnic discrimination inter interacts explosively with a kind of economic dynamic of class exploitation to produce you know an overwhelming experience of ex- oppression that is really more than the sum of the parts so what he was trying to do 
in this in this in this you know, looking at the exploitation of these ethnic groups on those banana plantations was to try and show how um, you know this ethnic discrimination was inextricably linked to class relations you know that is people's relations to each other as they are shaped by you know their relationship to the means of production and by their social reproduction you know so this was these like you could not actually separate the the way in which ethnic discrimination was a part of class exploitation you know so that to us like you know really rang through in how what was happening in these areas and um you know so we were trying to figure out like you know intersectionality has kind of gained a lot of purchase in 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 recent years but and while there are is you know there's a broad brush of scholarship you know there's very broad spectrum spectrum of people you know who are working on intersectionality and they do it in different ways and i think some of the work is like kind of close to what we're trying to do but um the mass of it is uh, looking at how different categories so for example whether it's caste or gender or you know race or gender or class you know how these they treat them as independent variables and and how and they look at how they as categories they may or may not interact in a particular moment in time and class itself is treated as a as a category and and for us i think that was a kind of very limiting way of looking at what was going on and what conjugated oppression allowed is to you know to to show how these how how these processes of ethnic oppression of caste oppression tribal oppression are inextricably linked to class exploitation you know so that and and we expand you know Philippe Bourgois ideas to also look at region and gender as being central um to the ways in which um the oppression takes place um so yeah so that was that was uh that was that's that's a kind of brief explanation of of conjugated oppression and you know that that wh- why it matters i think it matters for struggles because what we tend to find in in many places and of course there are exceptions is that the people who are dealing with class class struggles like the naxalites i worked with for example i lived with or the you know many of the kind of mainstream like left parties in 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 india even the trade unions you know they basically are looking you know they tr- they treat class they're looking at class you know they're not thinking about caste or or tribe or um you know gender for example so it's a big kind of weakness on in left politics and left movements in 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 india generally i mean this is not you know as i said there are exceptions but and and then um the 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 on the other hand you know there's a lot of dalit and adivasi politics which has become about you know identity politics and which may have or may have concerns of you know class exploitation uh, uh some some of it definitely does but a kind of f- focus on identity politics becomes over overwhelming and there's you know there's this kind of impasse in a way because you know you get the critique of the left from the dalits and the adivasis and then the dalits and the adivasis kind of forming their own movements which 
you know, are wary of the left and, um, and which can easily turn into identitarian movements. And so, um, yeah, uh, um, I think that what we're trying to do is to think about how these things could come together um, in, 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 in a kind of progressive um, politics. Um, uh, and, you know, there's long history in, in India of, of these, these, these problems. Uh, it's almost like, you know, there's a fear amongst left scholars. Raj Chandravakawadan said, you know, you treat the differences between workers seriously, like their ethnic differences seriously. And then there's this problem of, okay, well, where's the class? You know, they, they can't unite, you know, we can't, we can't point to these divisions because you can't unite. Uh, you know, that's going to challenge the idea of a, of a class consciousness. Um, and I think that's still, that's still kind of prevalent in, in especially, you know, amongst the unions and certainly, you know, the, the Naxites have tried to treat caste more seriously. Tribe, I think they haven't, you know, even though their strongholds have been in tribal areas, they could have given much more thought to what it means to be in an Adivasi area. Um, but, um, yeah, so, so this is like trying to, I guess, provide some kind of framework uh, to, to really show that these things need to and have to be thought about together and any kind of segregation is a segregation that is emerging from the very process of capitalism that uh, is, you know, that, that, that needs to be challenged. Hmm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for uh, explaining that and explaining the kind of afterlives and the political implications of the book. I know we've spoken a bit um, in our correspondence about how there's various ways in which you've tried to make the message of ground down by growth available to a larger audience. Um, and we also spoke about Night March, your new book. So in addition to those projects, um, what's on the docket for you now? What are you working on? Well, I mean, one of the well, one of the things I'm working on right now, very, very, very right now, is um, developing some of the ideas uh, in relation to migration that are in in the book, and you know, so so one of the you know the, the book highlights that there are three different important processes that are taking place. Uh, in 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 the ways in which capitalism and caste and tribe are interacting, one is these inherited inequalities of power, like the kamas or the reddies, or um, taking over, you know, the best jobs in the new economy and controlling what Adivasis and Dalits are able to do. And that, you know, we've talked about the conjugated oppression uh, uh, ideal, but also what is central in that process is, is how migrant labor is super exploited in, in India, seasonal casual labor migration, and how Adivasis and Dalits are, you know, at the core of that. And, and they're everywhere they are, uh, you find Adivasis and Dalits in, in, in that labor force. And how, so one of the things I'm trying to think through is um, some of the feminist theory on social reproduction and the ways in which this migrate, this labor is super exploited, which means thinking about not only what's happening at the site of production, you know, so at the site where the migrant migrants go, so their conditions of work and um, and 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 their living conditions in their workplace, but thinking about how the entire like family kinship and generational 
you know, family family and kinship structures of the whole migrant household, which is back at home, plus all their assets, the land that they may have and or whatever little assets they have, is crucial um, to the rep- to, to that ability of that laborer to be in working at that moment in time. So, you know, how how the kind of whole economies of care of that migrant laborer, which are which go over generations and are uh, you know very and 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 gender relations are crucial to um to how we think about what's happening to migrant labor and the ways in which it's super exploited and also what it means to think about um you know politics for a progressive politics that includes migrant laborers i mean what kind of where you know what kind of that what what would be that politics for migrant laborers are you know very rarely represented in any kind of progressive politics notoriously difficult to mobilize and so this is about thinking thinking about you know the entire economies of care which enable um, migrant laborers to work and um so so that's what i'm 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 working on right now but um the other things are are very much as you said we've been very keen for this um this this the work that we're doing not to be just relegated to the um yeah to the ivory towers of the university so we organized a major exhibition we we curated a major exhibition around these issues which was shown at SOAS and right now it's showing at in Turin uh, at the ILO in Turin and in the, at the university and is going to move to the regional town hall so I'm just about to go off tomorrow um, to Turin uh, to participate in some of the activities around that, so it's helping you know these ideas to to spread beyond beyond the university and for other people to take on. We had an Adivasi fellow program where Adivasi's fellows, you know, young junior career fellows, came to spend some time at SOAS and LSE. Um, we've been working with unions in India to disseminate some of our research and discuss it and think about the implications for their work. So we had a meeting in Delhi in December where unions from you know, all over the country came and we're also working with the ILO to think about how you know in their decent work agenda things like um, caste where ethnic discrimination could be much more centrally thought about not just in terms of you know okay the 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 rag pickers or the rubbish collectors, but also just more generally in terms of of work. Um, and I, I'm also thinking a lot about the question of why we write and why I write my other book, which you were kind enough to mention at the beginning. Night March is written in a very different style to Grandan by Growth. It's written for a wider audience without trying to dumb down the scholarship. And I was really, um, yeah, I was delighted to be shortlisted or longlisted for this prize, which, you know, because Orwell was a real big inspiration and um, in in writing about it. So I'm thinking about that question of why I write uh, more generally and in terms of anthropology and in terms of what it means to be a British uh, scholar working on South Asia at this moment in time uh, and why we write and why we write in the way we do. And um, so, yeah, so I'm, I, I'm, I'm still working through some of the material, both from Grand Down by Growth and also um, from from my book Night March uh, right now. And eventually, I'm sure that's all going to lead to other steps uh, in different directions, which I I I, I'm, I think are too early to, to tell right now. Hmm. 
Well, I for one would like to say I really appreciate you know the thought with the thought you put um, to the political stakes of what you're writing and even asking this question you know why should I write I think um, more of us should be doing that um, especially given you know the really horrible situation that most of the people in the world are, are living in so thank you so much for writing this amazing book and for all your work and thanks for being on the show you're very kind thank you so much Aparna for yeah, giving me an opportunity to talk about some of our work <laughs>